0: Come, give us all the help we need. We do need your Jesus name. Amen. In his stellar book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Christian author Philip Yancey recounts this story. You might have heard it before. That during a British conference on comparative religions in the last century, experts from all over the world came together, and they started debating, as you do in comparative religion conferences, Basing what, if any, belief? What, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith? So we started looking at all the possibilities. What's it the incarnation? The belief that God Himself came in flesh as a human being, Jesus. Other religions sort of had that sort of, not quite, but different versions of gods appearing in human form. Well, how about the resurrection of Jesus? And other religions had some kinds of accounts of return from death. So debate went on and on, expecting, examining, and discussing for some time until C.S. Lewis, professor, Christian thinker, author, wandered into the room and asked, well, what's all the rumpus about? And he heard and replied that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. Lewis, without really even thinking about it for very long at all, responded, oh, of that, that question, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. After some discussion, the conference had to reap. Yancey says this, the notion of God's love coming to us, free of charge, no strings attached, Judas the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish government, the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval for God. Only Christianity, only the gospel, dares to make God's love truly unconditional. It's all about grace. Here, after time and again throughout the first chapter of his letter to the Ephesian church, where he does extol the grace of God as the reason for which God loves us, and rescues us, and adopts us, and brings us into his family, and sets his eyes upon us, all these things go back to that chapter and read about it. Here he zooms in a little bit and focuses on this idea of grace. For time that remains, I want to quickly go through this passage and look at three things about grace and what the Apostle Paul says about grace. First, our need for grace. Secondly, the provision of grace. And thirdly, the fruits of grace. Three things. Our need, the provision, and the fruits of grace. First of all, the need for grace. Paul here in the beginning of this passage is reminding the Ephesians and therefore reminding us of the ways before their lives were changed by Jesus. And this is what he says. That we are, all of us, spiritually dead by nature. Spiritually dead. Verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. You say, dead? What does that mean? I feel pretty alive. Certainly he's not talking about our physical bodies or minds He's talking about our soul. You we say, well, I seem to have some inclination towards God, interested in spiritual things, sort of. Maybe that's what brought you here today. What Paul means here, what the Bible means by this idea, is that when it comes down to it, deep down in our soul, that we are spiritually not <coughs> responsive to God, at least not in the way that he created us to be. We've seen in the news recently a lot of stories and pictures of individuals that are on ventilators. Uh, human vegetables, as it were, sort of a crass way of describing this state of being, perhaps having some motion, uh, perhaps having the appearance of life on some level, but ultimately, what keeps them alive is a machine. Maybe there's some motion, but there's no true medical life. The Bible says that apart from Christ, I know it's a provocative thing to say and to claim, but God is keeping us on a the mentally. There might be some motion, but no true life. Not without Him. Not in the way that He was. we were created to be. To be responsive and fully alive in the way that He meant us to be. And it's because we're stuck we're spiritually stuck, we're, we're enslaved, we're helpless, before what Paul calls here our transgressions and our sins. These words in the original language, transgressions, refer to crossing a line or spring from a path. <laughs> uh, the word behind sins here is, is falling short of a standard. Crossing a line and falling short of a bar. And that line, that standard according to the Bible, all that God requires of us in a way that would give us life is the law of love. That we would love God and love people around us. In other words, that we would put God first, and then we would put other people second, and then we would put ourselves third. And the human condition is simply this. We have it in the reverse. And that's our nature. That's our instinct. Sin reverses that order. And I'm now at the front of the service line. It's not just an occasional thing. It's a pattern of life. Verse 2, he says, The transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those are disobedient. It's not just a, a, a bad day that we're having or a bad turn in life. He's saying that the whole direction of our lives are flawed insofar as we follow the ways of the world and follow the ways of Satan. And that last part sounds unnerving, doesn't it? You might be saying, What does that mean? Calling me a Satan worshiper? Sure. Is that what you're saying? Well, no, no, no. What the apostle is saying is that there is a true Personal form of evil. His name is Satan. And that all of us, deep in our sin addicted hearts, are still listening to the serpent's whisper, what he whispered in the ear of Adam and Eve in the beginning of time. Have you heard this before? Don't you want to be your own God? Does God really want you to be? Your own? Question. It's not an occasional thing, it's not a surface thing either. In verse 3, the apostle says our problems that we're constantly gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts and flesh here is that refer to our physical bodies. It's talking about our human nature that's corrupted by this addiction to self. Our desires and thoughts. See, it's not just the things that we do, it's not just our behavior on the outside, it's deep inside. Even the things that you want are twisted, are turned inward, are corrupted by me at the front of the line in all things. Even in our thoughts. How often, when something bad happens to you or something good happens to you, you get a job or someone's hurting and you're talking to a friend, how the first thought and the first person that constantly comes into is you. We can't even love and serve other people without thinking about its implications for me. How am I doing as I'm caring for this hurting person? I confess that as a pastor as well, walking with people in the brokenness of life, embarrassing self-consciousness and self absorption. Walking with people that are dripping with tears, and all I can think as I'm talking to them is, I saying the right thing? I like helping them Because it's all about me. <coughs> the apostle says it's really bad. Dear friends, it is, isn't it? It's really bad. And therefore, he says, we deserve God's wrath. Verse 3, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Nobody likes to talk about judgment. No one likes to talk about accountability. We rather just not believe that it's true. We don't like the idea that we actually do deserve the wrath of God. Could I propose for a moment? I think it's just a little bit (coughs) critic. Do we want God to care? And we want God to be mad at bad things that happen when they happen out there and not in here. And so we crave a world of justice and we cry out against injustice, but as long as we're talking about injustice down the street, in the neighborhood, or around the Sometimes even sexually. Domestic abuse, we say, no, no, no. Hitting a spouse with fists, no, no, no. But when it comes to the way that we hit our spouses and roommates with words, we say, come on now. Wrath, you're going too far. We're accountable, folks. This is what the Bible tells us. We are accountable. Do you believe it. Have you considered it? Not because God wants to leave you in that place. In fact, follow the passage. He wants to take you there to a place of exalted joy. But you've got to start there. Because you might find the cure, but if all you thought you had was a common cold, it's no big deal. You shrug your shoulders and you live your life. But if you know that you had cancer, you start to sing. He's turned my morning into dancing. He's turned my sorrow into joy. Which brings us to the second point, the provision of grace. And it's simply this, that God gives a spiritual life in Christ. Look at verse 4, just the first word, but you're dead in your transgressions and sin. You're infected with this addiction to yourself. You're at the front of the line, putting both God and other people behind you. Verse 4, but. This is the biggest, most beautiful but you'll ever see. Because of the original Greek, what it actually says is but God. It's but God who is rich in mercy. God who lavishes his beauty. But God, himself, interrupts the natural course of things. By nature we are justly deserving of God's wrath. By grace God saves sinners. Salvation is God in his kindness, interrupting nature. You are spiritually dead by nature, but God by supernature, made us alive with Christ. When Jesus Christ was raised, Paul tells us, if you've been joined together with Him by faith, you've embraced Him, and you've joined your destiny up together with His, then when He died, you died, You were raised to life. When he was ascended and exalted to the right hand of the throne of God, there you were and are too. This is the extremely mind boggling reality of those who are united to Jesus through faith. (laughs) That all the status and the honor and the glory and authority and life that belongs to Jesus is now given to you. And not just from a distance, but get your mind around this. We're told here that you are presently, spiritually seated with Him in heaven this very moment if you are in Christ. That's how near and accessible all the spiritual powers and blessings and realities of heavenly life is to you. It is not far off. You're right there with Him, dear friends. He gives you life. He gives you life, and suddenly you can see like you never did before. The beauty and the majesty of God and Jesus. Suddenly, in some, some many, many cases, you can feel like you could never feel before a big heart of love for God. For Jesus, that even though you've never seen Him, you have a deep passion and love for Him. For some of you, that idea feels strange as you're exploring the Christian faith. You hear Christians talking about their love for this historic person, Jesus. And it's like that you've never met Him, have you? And yet you love Him, but you have met Him. Spiritually, in your souls, personally, because you're alive. And you can feel, and not only love for God, but love for people. And for many of you, maybe life needs having joy and dancing, like you've never danced before. Maybe for some of you, the greatest fruit of your new life in Christ would be to join MK and Jess in this praise dance group, and let your feet do the praising, because you have new life in Christ. Suddenly you can hear, you're no longer deaf to the Holy Spirit. Suddenly you can breathe, repenting of sins and renewing yourself with fresh trust in Christ. Friends, this is the heart of the Christian faith. Christianity is not about getting more moral. Christianity is not about getting more religious. Or be more spiritual, or getting more in touch with myself. Christianity is about getting life. Have you looked at it that way, dear friends? Whether if you're just starting to ask questions about the Christian faith, or if you've been a Christian for years, and sometimes the latter group is the most blind to this—that the good news is news that by the life and death of Jesus. God doesn't just make bad people good or bad people less bad. God makes dead sinners alive. Are you
1: living like you have
0: life? Are you selling yourself short, Christian? Living with too low expectation of what God actually has purchased for you in Christ? Because so often, isn't it true that when people start walking with God in the church, they find themselves living less life, acting less human, less free, less alive. God doesn't bear to let you live like that. He wants to give you a fresh dose of His Spirit that you might be today alive, like you truly are. And He does this because of what? Because we were deserving, not because God was impressed, Paul says, not because of our works, not because of the things that we do, but because of his great love for us. Because God is rich in mercy, verse 4. Because of the incomparable (coughs) riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus verse 7, We're even told in verse 5 that he made us alive with Christ and even when we were dead in transgression. You're still dead, still in transgression and sin, when God reached down and injected the life of the Holy Spirit into you and gave you what he created you to have in him.
1: You see, the reason
0: for grace is in God and not in us, which is good news, because it means it's never going to change. That there's nothing that you can do to improve upon the, more, the already perfect love of the Father for you and there's nothing that you can do or fail to do that will ever make him want to take it back away from you. There's grace and joy in knowing that the favor of God is grounded in his heart and not in your resume. In his heart, and not in your daily performance. In his heart, and not even in your morality. Which doesn't mean that God doesn't care about it. We'll get to that in a second. But it's not the basis of a new relationship with God that he desires of us, and that he offers to you. That is, by grace, through faith. Not from yourselves, Is the gift of God, which brings us to the last point—not just our need for grace and God's lavish provision of grace, but now the fruits of grace. How do you know that you have it? If a tree is alive, it bears fruit. And what are the two pieces of fruit that the apostle points us to here? Number one, he says, no more boasting. There's a deep humility. A deep, other-centered humility that comes about when you're touched by the grace of God in this way. Verse 8-9, this is not from yourselves, it is the grace, the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast.
1: What it means by boast is
0: the ways in which we have so much confidence in ourselves. Where we feel like life works because I make it work and God likes me because I'm pretty darn impressive. The gift of God and the grace of God for those that are dead in their sins is a grace that starts to make your heart the choice that your confidence is no longer in yourself, but your confidence is in Jesus. As Galatians 6 puts it, Apostle Paul, elsewhere: may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord. Jesus Christ. Where you live your life not trying to work your way into God's favor or earn his approval day in and day out, even with the religious stuff you do, but all of life is a humble thank offering and praise offering to God for his grace. It changes your life, if it really does. Has it changed you? Not humility in the abstract, but in your relationships. One example. The way in which it gets us to stop comparing ourselves to other people all the time. In other words, it removes and takes away from us this superiority and inferiority complex that we're constantly battling depending on who we're around. Because if you're boasting in yourself, you're confidence in yourself, you feel pretty good about how you're doing, you look at someone that's doing something bad, what happens? Self-righteousness, scorn. How can they be that way? Tsk, tsk, you should be ashamed of yourself. <clears throat> or maybe economically. Someone that's not doing as well as you are. And you feel like, hey man, I've made my life work because I've worked hard. And you look out at, at other people and all you can say is, why don't they work as hard as I What's wrong with them? I did, why can't grace of God removes this, gives us a humble heart that loves people, and sees ourselves as the chief of sinners, formerly dead in our transgressions, having earned the wrath of God, but now sinners, saved by grace. So humility, the first fruit, second fruit that Paul points us to, verse 10 we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That word handiwork is actually the word that we get our word poem from. But we are sort of God's work of art, his poetry, his, his craftsmanship. That, that God rescued us and saved us to create us all over again in Jesus, giving us life making us all that we were called to be and created to be, not just to get out of jail, but to live. Which means to love, and to serve, and to care, and to lay down your life. Dear friends, if you have been found in Jesus, do you know that God did that for you, so that you can live a life now, freely and joyfully, empowered by His grace, a life of abundant, incredible deeds, of self-sacrifice and love. What are you saved for? Not just what are you saved from, what are you saved for? To love God and to lay down your life for those around you. To take the call to love neighbor at its most literal at times. Caring about those to your immediate left and to your immediate right. The deep passion we have in this church as a neighborhood church. Caring for the high and the low and everyone in between but having a special concern for the least of these. Those that are vulnerable. The children of our neighborhood. The poor, the down and out. That we would live Again, empowered by the good news of grace. To live with radical generosity with our time and our energy and even our money and stuff. Because has not God done the same for us? Grace changes your life. It doesn't just get you off the hook. But when you start understanding that there was a need for grace because you I not dead <coughs> by our natures. But that there's a provision of grace because grace gives us life in Jesus. When it turns your life upside down, it makes you stand tall with humility, a bold confidence where you can say, here I am, Lord, send me. Where would you have me, love? Has the gospel commissioned you into life in that way? a life of love, a life of justice, a life of service to the glory of God. This is what the gospel compels us to consider. This is what changes our lives. This is the power of God at work within us in Jesus. Do you have it? Do you know it? Do you embrace it? Maybe for some of you today for the first time, maybe some of you in a life-changing way, all of us to the praise. So Lord, we pray that You would now project our hearts all over again with a fresh experience of Your grace. Here we are, just as we are, in all our sin and all our failures, and yet here we are, just as we are, clothed in Christ and loved in Him and alive in Him. Even as we sing this song, deep in our conviction of these things, sense of root, Christ can be Amen. Stand.